Well, this morning, here we go. To start our series, we have a special video from our very own Jeremy Fazer, one of our global workers in Tanzania. Draw your attention to the screen. Good morning, church. I'm Jeremy Fazer. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I have a story to tell you about a friend of mine. Her name is Carduni Alicia. Now, Carduni went on the first tour that we did with the Maasai, and she traveled all over the U.S., and she had some incredibly strange experiences on that trip, as I'm sure you can imagine. And if we were introducing the book of Jonah, I might tell you the story of Carduni and the big fish. But I've been asked to introduce Revelation, and so today I want to tell you the story of Carduni and the roller coaster. Now, Carduni comes from the middle of nowhere in Maasai land, and she had very little experience of the things that we think of as modern life. And all of a sudden, here she was in North America, and she was traveling around, and experience after experience was beyond her ability to imagine, and beyond what she had seen before. But the roller coaster was a really unique thing. Texas was a unique thing. All together, and I think many of you can imagine a little bit what she must have been going through. A couple years after, I had the chance to be out in in Maasai land, and I was at her house, and I was talking with her and some group of other people, and someone asked the question. They said, Carduni, Coco, they said, Grandmother, tell us the story of the roller coaster. And Carduni got really serious, and she thought about it for a minute. You could tell she was taking herself back. And she said, there is this place, and you go there, and they have this thing called roller coaster. <laughs> and the roller coaster... It's like a chair. And she was sitting in a little chair and she sat down in it. She says, you sit down and they put a bar across you so you can't get out. And then the roller coaster, it's like a train. It goes up, 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 very slowly. Up, 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 as far as Bushman can shoot an arrow. She says, you go so high. You can see the whole world from up there. And then, and then you get to the top and you go, oh, 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 my Jesus, my grandchildren. And that's how Carduni describes a roller coaster. And I thought about it and I laughed and it was a funny story, but it's interesting because Carduni doesn't have better words to use to describe a roller coaster to someone living in a desert. There simply aren't roller coasters around. There simply is nothing that's more like a roller coaster than a chair or a train. And so those are the best words she could come up with. And it's interesting because it's not enough. If you were to listen to Carduni's description of a roller coaster, you'd have no idea what a roller coaster really was. But if you've experienced a roller coaster and you hear Carduni's description, you laugh with her and you say, yep, that's what a roller coaster's like. So that's what I think the book of Revelation is about. I think the book of Revelation, in a lot of cases, is these pictures for us of a place we've never been, of things we've never experienced. And it's a chance for us to hear John's words as he walked through the set of experiences that were too big for words. I saw someone like a son of man. I saw someone. There was a sword coming out of his mouth. I saw what appeared to be and there was a there was a dragon. These words are John's best attempt 
And for us, they are these fantastic pictures of something that remains unseen. And for me, that's hope. Because that means that there's still forward progress to be made. There's still stuff that God's got to do. We're not done yet, guys. And so let's look at the book of Revelation and let's see what it is that the Spirit is saying to the church. And let's see if we can put it into our own words, even if those words don't do any justice to the great big picture. Love you guys. Praying for you. Thank you so much for allowing me to be involved in this service this way. Awesome. It was a really windy day, and he wanted to do it outside, so he wasn't stuck in a small studio, so he wanted to come out and do that for us. That was when Pastor Daniel and I were in Tanzania, we asked him if he would help us with this. So he had this awesome story. We were sitting in Maasai land, and we saw uh, the grandmother share her story of the roller coaster ride, and uh, it was hilarious. We were on the floor just laughing. So it is a roller coaster ride. It's going to be a roller coaster ride, but are you ready? Buckle up. Here we go. The end of the story has already been written. And though we know that Jesus wins, the vivid imagery of the book of Revelation can stir fear in our minds. Our faith in Christ, our victor, must displace all fears. So over the next five weeks, we're going to interpret the main themes of the Apostle John's revelatory vision as we eagerly await the return of Jesus Christ. He is coming soon. Our scripture comes from Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 to 13. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. There are seven letters to seven churches. We are going to read the sixth letter to the seventh, uh, to six out of seven letters. This is to the church in Philadelphia. Let's read together in one voice. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Revelation chapter 3, your letter, O oh God, to the church in Philadelphia. And God, we need to hear your words this morning because these are re relevant words for us. Father, as we engage and we discuss and we examine the reality of the rapture, I pray that fear would be displaced with peace that we would know that you have made a way for us, a way of rescue, God, 
that we will not have to endure what the earth endures, but we will be raptured in a moment and we will be with you and we'll be seated in the throne room of God. What a wonderful day that will be. So God, help us to be excited. Stir our emotions. Stir our excitement so that we are uh, passionate about the things of God, that we're passionate about the plan that is unfolding today before our very eyes. And God, give us patience and endurance to wait. We live in difficult times. And so, Lord, we need patience and endurance to make it through. But we are promised that we will experience all that you've promised, oh God. We will see it come to pass in our lives with our very own eyes and ears. So, Father, would you bless your people through the reading and the preaching of your word today. Lord, I need your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Many people have tried to predict the moment of the rapture. There was a man named Edgar Weissenant who predicted that the end times would begin between September 11th to 13th on, in 1988. And because his prediction proved to be false, he revised his prediction to September 30th, 1989. Another man named Harold Camping made his initial prediction on September 6, 1994, a second prediction on September 29, 1994, a third prediction on October 2, 1994, a fourth prediction on March 31, 1995, and then finally a fifth prediction on May 21, 2011. He thought he should leave some room in between the two dates. Might just be wise, might work out. Those who are over the uh, 20 years and older will remember how the hysteria visited our world at the turning of the millennium known as Y2K. Everybody thought Jesus was coming in the year 2000. I've always wondered if the same hysteria was experienced at the turn of the first millennium during the Middle Ages. I, I, probably not because they didn't have computers. But people are still making predictions to this very day. God does not want us to become preoccupied with the when, but with the why and the how of the rapture. As we begin this series, let me preface everything that I will say over the next five weeks with two encouragements and one statement. The first encouragement is to stop making predictions. Just stop doing it. Matthew 24, 36 to 42 tells us of the unpredictable nature of the end times events. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. We must begin every day of our lives anticipating the end of our lives. 
not with fear of what may happen, but with confidence of what will happen, as it is described to us in the book of Revelation. And the only way you can be fully prepared is by meditating on Scripture. I know a lot of people who avoid this book of the Bible. We need to press into the book of Revelation. We need to meditate on it day and night to understand what it really means for us. It's not about the day or the hour. It's about our readiness every moment of our lives. And when you least expect it, the contents of the book of Revelation will become a reality. The second encouragement is to embrace the mystery. There are all sorts of things in the book of Revelation that we don't understand, symbolic things. It's a vision, so we don't fully comprehend it all. This book is part of a wider genre called apocalyptic literature. And there are apocalyptic portions of scripture in the book of Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah and Joel and Zechariah. There are extra biblical examples of apocalyptic literature in what is known as the Apocrypha, books that were evaluated but were not accepted into our biblical canon. Some of them, they are in the Catholic canon. The pseudopigrapha, books that were rejected from our biblical canon because they were written under pseudo-authors or false authorship and were considered uninspired texts. There's tons of stories, tons of books out there. And as we approach Revelation, we must remember Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. There are things that we do not know because they are not yet revealed. And what we do know is everything essential for our salvation and for eternal life. We have everything that we need in the word of God, 66 books of the Bible. The existence of a mystery suggests to us that God has already worked things out in advance and it's just a matter of time before they become known to us. So we patiently wait for God to unfold these events in our lives. Finally, I'm going to make a statement, an important statement. We are a church that is affiliated with the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. The members of Waterloo Pentecostal Assembly are those who accept and teach the following end-time position uh, taken from section 5.8.2 of the Statement of Fundamental and Essential Truths 2014. So this is a document that our denomination has, and we ascribe to believing these things because we're a Pentecostal church in affiliation with them. Listen to these words. The rapture, the blessed hope of the church, is the imminent coming of the Lord in the air to receive to himself his own, both the living who shall be transformed and the dead in Christ who shall be resurrected. And this event takes place before the wrath of God is poured out during the tribulation. Believers then will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged according to faithfulness in Christian service. This is what this church believes. For those who are not formal members of our assembly, as we work through these, this series, you may have your own end times interpretations, and that's completely okay. I understand that. But it's important for you to understand what this church believes with great clarity. And if there's any difference of views between any of us, we can respectfully agree to disagree. Can we do that? That's okay. 
Furthermore, for those who are formal members of this church, you might not realize it, but through your membership process, you have indicated your agreement with the PAC's statement of faith and essential truths. That's kind of what you signed up for. This is kind of what you believe. And as we work through this series, you may come to the realization that you're not in agreement with our statement of faith and all that may be taught at WPA. And if that's you, can I ask you to do something? Instead of expressing your frustration to others, I can't believe this church believes this sort of thing. Instead of adding to the confusion, can I encourage you to come connect with me? Can I encourage you to come meet with one of our elders? Because since all of this concerns sound doctrine, the elders carry the spiritual, spiritual responsibility of helping congregants navigate their theology. And we want to help you. We want to answer any questions that you may have. We want to create a conversation. This morning, I'd like for us to examine Revelation 3, 4, and 5 in order to locate the rapture in Revelation from, and using big words, a dispensational premillennial view. Big words, let me define them for you. The word dispensation refers to different ways God has engaged and will engage with his people. And we are currently living in a time of grace. This is the sixth age. And we are awaiting the time of the kingdom, the seventh and final age. So God has been communicating with us. God has been communicating with people in the Bible. It's been a long period of time. And he's communicated different ways with the law. He's communicated with covenants. He's communicated in different ways to different people. Now we're living in this era of communicating grace. Secondly, the, pre, the word premillennial is one of three possible end times views. Uh, it's in addition to postmillennial and amillennial views. It is the belief in a rapture from the earth to heaven before the tribulation and the millennial thousand-year reign of Christ. So here we go. You ready? First point, the raptured will skip the tribulation. Good news. Revelation 3, 10 to 11 tells us, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. I know what some of you are thinking. Nowhere in the book of Revelation will you explicitly find the word rapture. It's not there. A lot of Christian doctrine ideas, the, some of the words are not always in there. So where does it come from? Well, the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek. It was translated then from Greek to Latin. Then it was translated from Latin into the English language. And so the word rapturo is the Latin word, and harpazo is the Greek word for the phrase caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Okay? So this is a Latin word, a Latin translation. English, te English tends to draw from all the Latin, not from the Greek. So starting in Revelation 1.19, it is Jesus who provides the layout for John's final book. Here's what he says. Here's what he instructs John to do. Write, therefore, first, what you have seen. Secondly, what is now. And third, what will take place later. This is the agenda for the book of Revelation. This end times outline unfolds in the first five chapters. 
I'll tell you why. Revelation 1 is what John sees. He sees a vision of Jesus Christ. The focus is primarily on Jesus and hearing his words. Jesus is the main character of this book from the very beginning. We were to fix our eyes on this Jesus, no matter what we see in the book of Revelation, no matter how big the dragon, no matter how big the beast, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen? Then in Revelation 2 and 3, the scripture addresses the churches of Asia Minor. There are seven churches. Now, this was John's immediate context, his present context, even though he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And the seven churches represent, yes, literal churches during the first century, but they also more widely represent the condition of believers in all churches all over the world across the centuries. This is a story about the condition of the church. Jesus offers a mixture of commendations and corrections to each one. And so we should be asking ourselves today, what would Jesus say to the church in Waterloo? Or even more specifically, to the church that means at Waterloo Pentecostal Assembly, what is Jesus Christ saying to us today? And some of those things in the seven churches might be applicable for us. Or maybe Jesus wants to say something unique to us. Revelation 4 and 5 addresses what will take place in heaven after the rapture. This is the throne room of God. And we get a glimpse of heaven and what it will look like for believers to be raptured into glory. And then the remaining chapters explain what takes place within, during the same time period as Revelation 4 5. What do I mean by that? Revelation 6 to 19 will address what will take place on earth while we're in heaven during the tribulation period. And then Revelation 20 to 22 will introduce a new heaven and a new earth. This is the new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. In this sixth letter, Jesus speaks to the church in Philadelphia. In accordance with his outline, there is a promise of rapture in Revelation 3.10. Listen to these words. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus intends to keep his church, to protect his church, to secure his church from whatever the world is going to experience. And to the believers who wait patiently for his appearing, they will bypass the trials and the tribulations that the rest of the world must undergo. Aren't you glad? So if you want to skip in the rapture, if you want to skip the tribulation, you must be sure that you read the fine print of Scripture. How do we know for sure that what is said in Revelation 3.10 will actually come to pass? Well, we need to read a little bit before and we need to read a little bit after. Revelation 3.8, we read, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. There is this door. This reminds us of Jesus' I am statement in John 10.9. I am the gate or I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And then later in John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we need to understand this this morning. Jesus is the door. 
And that connects heaven and earth, the, temp the temporal with the eternal. And if the turning point of the rapture takes place as we move from that promise in Revelation 3 to its reality in Revelation 4, then we must look carefully at the invitation given to John and, and to what he sees as he sees this door, this vision of a door. Look at the turning point, Revelation 4.1. We see the rapture in the book of Revelation. After this, I looked. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, what? Come up here. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. I believe with my heart that this is the moment of rapture in Revelation 4. We see ideas of revelation in 1 Thessalonians. We see ideas of rapture in 1 Corinthians. Now we see it here in Revelation. When the rapture takes place, you and I will also receive a personal invitation from Jesus to come up here. And we will see everything from a whole new point of view. The signals and the sounds are very consistent with the Apostle Paul's description of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17. The scripture says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up, rapturo together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. In both Revelation 4, 1 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, Jesus not only speaks literal words, but he sound, the sound of his voice is like a trumpet call. And this is the moment we must eagerly await for. This is the hope that we have in him. The hope is first for the dead in Christ, and the hope is second for those who are still alive in Christ when he returns. And if you're a believer, you will not need to live through the tribulation because God, our God, has made a way for you and I. And I don't know what should make you more excited than that truth. That is the most amazing truth that we have, that God has made a way for us. I hope you're excited. Second point this morning is the raptured will sit in the throne room. We look at Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 to 7. The vision continues. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby and a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and the peals of thunder. And in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, and the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Man, what a sight. 
In Revelation 1.10, John writes, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit. Here, now again, Revelation 4.2, John writes, At once I was in the Spirit. In order to see what God is showing him, he needs to be in the Spirit. We need to be people of the Spirit. This is not a hallucination. This is an experience whereby the Holy Spirit enables John to enter into this revelation of Jesus Christ. And he is transported from the natural realm of the churches on earth into the supernatural realm of the kingdom of God as it is in heaven. And the central object of the throne room of God is the throne. It's all about the throne. More importantly, the one who is seated on the throne, that is God the Father. And the only way John knows how to put into words what he saw was by referring to stones like rubies and jaspers and emeralds that portray the rarity and the preciousness and the brilliance of God's presence. He's just using the words he has, just like the Maasai woman describing a roller coaster. We're then introduced to 24 elders, and now these elders are really important. They are seated on 24 mini thrones. Who exactly are these elders? Well, I believe two observations from their appearance will help us with clues as to their true identity. I want you to look at what they're wearing this morning. And as you observe that, Jesus only robes the redeemed in white. That's a fact. Let's look at Revelation 3, 4 to 5. The scripture says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, what? Dressed in white, for they are worthy. And the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. Our God will dress us in white when we're in the throne room of God. We will look like he does. It is Jesus, the one who exchanges our filthy rags for robes of righteousness. Our white clothes, our white garments represent the sinless purity of Jesus Christ. Not our own purity, but his purity on us. Secondly, Jesus only rewards the redeemed with crowns. You see these elders, 24 elders, wearing golden crowns. Let's look at Revelation 2.10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. There's something special about these crowns. There are a total of five crowns in the Bible that can be awarded to believers in heaven. There's the imperishable crown in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 25. There is the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. There is the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, 8. There is the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, 2 to 4. There is the crown of life in James 1, 12. And I believe it's very likely that the elders are wearing the crown of life. As we press for the identity of these elders, they could represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles for a total of 24 faithful representatives from both the Old and the New Testaments. It's possible. 
This is likely based on Jesus' words to his disciples. In Matthew 19, 28 to 29, Jesus had said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the rapture, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who, was left, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Well, this might be the very literal interpretation. Using a more figurative interpretation, I believe that the elders in Revelation symbolize the believing, raptured church. Anyone who followed Jesus, leaving their family, leaving their possessions behind because of the cause of Jesus Christ, will be counted among the elders. It's, it's not about the number. It's about who they represent, their identity. These are people just like you and me. And just as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, we too will sit around the throne of God like elders. These are the best seats in the heavenly places. You know when you go to the movie theater and you're looking for that best seat in the middle? Some of you like the top, top, the top row. Some of you like just right being in the middle between the bottom and the top and the sides and just right in there, seat 10 and 11 and 12. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are so blessed that you go to that place, D-box seats, where the seats rattle and shake. Those are good seats. We're going to have some amazing seats. We're going to have an amazing point of view in the throne room of God, and we're going to see God and his tangible presence. The Apostle Paul recalls the words of the prophet Isaiah in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 10, when he says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. In the throne room of God, you will see things you have never seen before. In the throne room of God, you will hear things you have never heard before. In the throne room of God, your mind will conceive thoughts that no human has ever conceived before. It's just going to be that amazing. One of the examples of this are the four living creatures that we see. They are of a different order than the cherubim found in Ezekiel or the seraphim found in Isaiah. We see them again in Revelation 5. And while we might speculate as to who they are, we will just simply have to wait to experience the rapture for ourselves to really know who they are and what they do. This is part of the mystery. Are you excited to sit in the throne room of God? Usher him. Lastly, the raptured will sing the truth. The raptured will sing the truth. You find this in Revelation 4, 10 to 11. Scripture says the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. If you don't like singing or if you have a bad voice, you better get used to it. This is going to be your life calling. Heaven will be full of 24-7 worship. And let me help, the, help, let me help put this into perspective for you today. To our seniors, this means 
An infinitely better experience than listening or watching endless Gaither homecoming concerts. I'm telling you, this is going to be 10 billion times better than that. Okay? To our students, our young adults, let's just say that it's going to be 100 billion times greater than the longest Hillsong worship service. I'm serious. You better get ready. Don't be mistaken, though. We will not be singing any of your favorite songs. We won't be singing in your favorite style, Southern gospel or genre, rock. We will be singing a new song to the Lord. Heaven is a place where there are no worship wars. When we put aside our preferences, we allow our times of worship to serve as heaven's rehearsal. I just want to remind you that we're not going to be singing all those Gaither songs in heaven. I just want to tell you that you're not going to be singing all these new Hillsong songs in heaven. You're going to be singing the scriptural songs that God has set for us to put upon our lips. And we will sing those songs to the Lord forever and ever. They ain't going to stop. And you're going to love it. You're going to love it. As we turn our attention to Revelation 4, 10 to 11, we see the elders participating in worship by falling down and laying their crowns before the throne of God. We fall down. We lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. You'll be in the presence of royalty. The king of kings deserves your crown. God's presence will captivate us to the point when we'll put aside our personal enjoyment, sitting in the seat of honor, wearing our crown to worship, and we will choose to worship him. That is because with the rapture, we will fully appreciate the fact that God has saved us from the tribulation. Do you know what you're created for? You were made to worship God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, 1646 to 1647, poses the question, What is the chief end of man or woman? Man's or woman's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is what we're going to be doing. The lyrical content of our worship will be truths. Truths about the worthiness of God, the holiness of God, ascribing to the Lord the glory and the honor and the power that is due his most excellent name. And we will sing our affirmations of him as the creator of all people and all things. And as Romans 11.36 summarizes, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And the church said, amen. So while all of this worship is wonderful, there is just one person missing. We know that this is a revelation of Jesus, but where is Jesus to be found? Well, in order to find him, we need to fast forward a little bit. We move to Revelation 5, verses 8 to 10. And when, we, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. We're going to be singing 
that we're going to be playing songs to the Lord. We don't know how much time elapses between Revelation 4 and 5, but I believe we're getting closer and closer to the culmination of all things. And Jesus' appearance as the lamb that was slain can mark the end of the tribulation. As with God the Father, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is also seated on the throne, and he is worthy to receive equal, same worship that our God the Father deserves. How many people here today are musical? They play an instrument. Raise your hand. Awesome. This is good. How many people don't play an instrument but would like to play an instrument? Okay, that puts it into perspective. A lot of people. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book Outliers, he tells us that it takes 10,000 hours or 10 years of deliberate practice to become an expert in something. Since I was at the age of four years old, my mom put me in piano lessons. I played the piano from that age, and then I played professionally as a worship pastor for one decade before becoming a lead pastor here at Waterloo Pentecostal Assembly. So, without boasting, Knowing the time I put into it, oh, those hours, uh, I can't get those hours back, but I can officially say that I have become an expert pianist, according to Malcolm Gladwell, okay? But what if I told you that you can play one instrument without practicing at all? I'm not talking about playing the spoons. <laughs> I'm not talking about playing hot cross buns on your recorder. If you're a parent and, you, you, you know, your child grew up here in Canada, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, man. Some of you think Chopsticks is playing the piano. That's not it. Here's the good news. One day all of us will become harpists in the throne room of God. You'll just have to wait until you're raptured to be able to do this. <laughs> and together, we will make, all of us, everybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ, we will make an arpeggiated praise that puts George Frederick Handel's harp concerto in B-flat major to shame. I mean, we're going to be real good. As the elders previously sang of God's worthiness, they will also sing of the Lamb's worthiness because what he has accomplished. And Christ's blood has purchased a multi-ethnic multitude for himself. You see, we are no longer citizens of Canada, citizens of Germany, India, Nigeria, Colombia, the Philippines, Romania, and so many other more nations. We will truly be citizens of the kingdom of God. We will no longer be Pentecostal, Baptist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Anglican, Mennonite, Brethren, and so many more denominations. We will truly be the royal priesthood God wants us to be. And we will worship him forever and ever. Are you excited to sing and play a new song to the Lord? This is what the rapture is all about. I don't know who put fear into you. But I'm telling you, you don't need to be fearful anymore. This is something to be excited about. As we conclude this morning, I hope I have dispelled your fear of the rapture and stirred excitement for the rapture. And what is in question is not the certainty of the rapture, but rather the readiness of the Christian. Are you ready for this moment? 
And you might be thinking, Pastor, the church has been waiting for the rapture for 20 centuries. The disciples were waiting for the rapture. Are you really sure it's going to happen? And if so, even in my lifetime. Well, God has tarried. It's an old-fashioned word which means he has delayed, but not without intention. 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us his purpose. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, the delay is his patience. He is so patient. He loves people that much. The rapture could take place at any moment, and the worst thing that could happen is that you'd miss the moment. You'd miss the moment because you're caught up in your own life. You miss the moment because you've put off Jesus Christ and you've thought about other things that are more important, more dear to you. My desire this morning is not to scare you into the kingdom with a message of hell and fire and brimstones as others have done in previous generations. That's a true reality, but I'm not preaching that, that to you today. I'm preaching solely the rapture to you today. For those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ, I have done my very best to lay before you part one of a convincing case for the end. And as I've prayed in preparation for the sermon series, I have asked God to draw unbelievers to this place so that they may hear one of the five messages that I will share. And I believe that there's at least one person here today one person who needs to make a decision that will change the trajectory of their lives and where they will spend their eternity. Will you be counted among those who skip the tribulation, who sit on the throne, and who sing the truth? Let's pray.